everyone. I have a reading from Psalms 102, verses 3 through 11. For my days pass away like smoke, and my, burn, my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread because of my load. Groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake, and not, I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingled tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I will Thank you, Amber. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 102. Um, that's where we find ourselves in this Lenten journey, this pilgrimage that we set a course on a few weeks ago, um, moving us from choosing, really, to honestly to step into the shadows of death, right? To follow the Good Shepherd through the valley uh, into the darkness, into, um, into the tomb, where a few weeks ago we found ourselves, um, at the, the very pit, at the very bottom um, of the death of self, of old self, of sin itself, right? And that's where we're following Jesus into, and that's where we got. This is where our psalms have led us. Um, the first couple of psalms set out the course, the atmosphere, so knowing that, that the way we were going, we knew this is where we were going to head to. We knew that we would get to a place of death. We'd get to a tomb. We'd get to a cross, we knew that even in that movement, while we felt the pressure of that, that we would be breathing in the air of forgiveness, of the Lord's presence and his nearness to us along the journey. But then we moved into the struggle, the, the actual act of, of dying to self and to sin, which is a real struggle, right? Which even today, as Amber read, the psalmist tends to still feel, right? This movement, this pilgrimage that we're through is not linear, right? Like we tend to think of a journey as, you know, I start with part A and we get to part B and we just, we move on a straight line through it. Um, but as we know in life, life doesn't always work that, that straightforward, right? There's bends and turns and sometimes we're on a straight path and all of a sudden we kind of get turned around and find that we're kind of in the same muck and mire that we thought we'd already gotten out of, right? And in some ways, Lent kind of walks us through the same thing. Over and over again, through these nuanced repetitions, we're, we're brought into this place of dying to self and to sin. So that, we know that, at some point, we'll get to the resurrection. We'll get to the end. We'll get to Easter Sunday, right? We know that that's where the end we're going, but we kind of keep walking through some of this mess. And last week, we, we, we kind of entered into the very, the very bottom of that pit um, at the end of death struggle, and for the first time, really began to see a little bit of the glimpse of light on the back end of it. Like the song we just sang, that what we, we longed for and were able to cry out in Lent struggle, how long, O oh Lord, to join with all the saints throughout history who have called that, that out, prayed that prayer, who continue to pray that prayer. We see, just like in the song we sang, like a hope for more than dawn's light. Like the light of dawn is there. We can kind of see it. It's, it's, it's just on the horizon, but we, we want the sun all the way up, Right? We want, it, we want to be in the wide pasture, the wide land of rest where we can sit by still waters. And we saw that there's this epiphany that happens at this moment where we realize that we're utterly unable to bring life ourselves. At the point of the darkest point of, in, our, in, our, in our journey, that we are utterly unable to have life in and of ourselves. We can't. And at the same moment, the same moment we realize how utterly unable we are Behold, God desires the truth in us. He desires to teach us to live and how to live. He desires not death, but life through death. Like at that very moment, we begin to see, that's the epiphany, that's the turn, we're moving out. But like I said, sometimes the movement out <laughs> um, finds us, even when we think we know, like, hey, it's right here, it's right at the end. We kind of find ourselves back in this kind of place of, I'm still in the process of dying. I'm still in the process of, of dying. And so the way these Psalms have been put together through history has kind of led us into this kind of progression that we're moving towards Easter, but at the same time gives us a real picture of even our own kind of way we go about life in this going from death to life. And so today we enter into a Psalm um, 
into Psalm 102 that gives us the memory of Lent. That this season that we're in, this movement from death into the tomb, out through the tomb into resurrection, there's something we have to remember along the way. There's something that will help us as we remember, as our memory is, is spirit-filled and charged, that we can, that will allow us to be ones who get to fully arrive at Easter Sunday. And the first thing that this psalm helps us remember is that we do not suffer, we do not die alone. I know, I know it felt like, in what Amber just read, the, the words of a singular person, right? Something that maybe we've all cried. And we'll go back through those in just a second. That there's, there's a part of this journey, if we're honest, right, where we've talked about throughout the weeks, like what are you dying to? What's being put to death in you? What old self is being taken off so that the new self, the full self, the life in God's self, can be lived? And that feels real individual, right? Real personal. And how often have we gone through times in our own lives where we feel the weight of self-dying, of, or we feel the weight of sin, the, bro, the reality of brokenness, whether our sin or the sins of the world or the fact that we live in a, live in, um, a time and place of death, right? Where thing, the life doesn't always come from actions, but sometimes takes life. Sometimes actions take it. Have we not cried out like the psalmist and ached like the psalmist and felt lonely like the psalmist, Right? But there's something that in this psalm and the way that it's crafted, the way it's put together, that is meant to show us that we're not alone in that. While it's true that each of us will individually experience the death of old self and sin in our own unique way with the Lord, in a personal way with the Lord, that we never die alone. We never go through death alone. We never suffer alone. In fact, so the first two, if you've got Psalms two, Psalm 102, the first two verses say this. They say, hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Now, if these words sound familiar, it's because they're used at least a dozen times in the Psalms. These two verses are repeated often. They're a way in which the, the people of God throughout history have marked psalms of, of lament together, have been to mark that these psalms are consistent in shared intercession, shared prayer, that these are words that we share together. Like while we may pray them personally, they're never prayed alone, individually. They're always prayed together collectively. These are, this is our prayer we cry out, O oh Lord. We cry to you. Don't hide your face from us in the day of distress. Incline your ear to us. Answer us speedily in the day when I call. And us not just being like for a general sense, but again, personal too, right? That together we can all say these things. The singer, as one commentator says of the psalm, was not an isolated as he or she felt, nor are any of his or her successors who belong together despite time and space. I tell you this because this is, we, have to, we need to see this in order for us to get the rest of the psalm, right? The psalm begins with what would have been a common refrain to God's people that what we're about to sing, even though it sounds personal, it is personal, right? Like what the psalmist is about to recount is super personal. It's just not alone. It's not individual. It's not autonomous. That, that we're crying out together. We're dying together. We're longing together. We're hoping together. And so when the psalmist goes into the next verses, into verse three, and says, for my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered, literally, when my heart is struck down like grass and is on the very threshold of death, when I feel myself dying, I know that you are too. You feel the same way. You've had the same experience. That I'm not the only one. That I'm not the only one, the psalmist continues, that whose 
who groans and whose bones ache and burn, who cling to try to cling to life, but really I seem to be withering away the strength of being faded from me. Or I'm not the one, even though I feel like I'm an owl in the wilderness, I'm this solitary creature in the dark. Or like a sparrow alone on the edge of a roof, isolated from everything else, not a part of a flock. That's just not true. I feel that way, and it's true that you feel that way. But it's not true that you are that. It's true that you feel death coming, and you feel alone in it. But it's not true that you're alone. Does that make sense? That the feelings aren't invalid, they're just not reality. The reality is, as the psalmist has said in the first two verses, that we're saying this together. What we feel, truly feel, is felt together. That when we lie awake, like a, again, like a lonely sparrow on the housetop, when our, our enemies, it seems like our enemies surround us and taunt us in verse eight, that they deride us and use our name as a curse where it feels like everything is against us and no one is for us. While we feel that way, that's not true. While it's true that there is one who wants to take life from us, he's not just trying to take our life, he's trying to take others. Others have gone through this. Others are with me in it. When all we have to consume in verse nine is mourning and grief, when what we survive on is the angst of our own situation, we're not alone. And even though we feel like nobody can understand us, they can because they've been through it. Even when we know, because in verse 10, we feel this way because of God's indignation and anger. Because of God's, because of God's indignation. Indignation is a social emotion. It's not an isolated emotion. It's not, it says anger. Like there's this personal feeling, right, that the, the psalmist has of God's, of God's frustration, his, his emotion towards something. But the indignation is this, is this emotion that's drawn from perceived injustice. Because injustice is happening within a group, within a context. That, that God is frustrated, angry with things that lead from life into death. I, we feel this way because in some way we're caught up in it and a part of it, right? We're, we're caught up in a, in a part of something that God doesn't love and long for, which is injustice, brokenness. Things that lead away from life into death. And we know we're caught up in it, but, but again, we're not caught up in it alone. It's a social, it's a social term. We're caught up in it with others. And even though it feels like in verse 11 that our days are an evening shadow, that dark is encroaching, covering the light as a tomb encloses us. And again, we wither away like grass. We are on the brink of death. We're on the brink of death with others. Others have gone to the brink of death before us. And others will follow us on the same path. There's this thing about the psalm that, that again, that we need to note, that it is the first memory that we have is that our suffering, our dying is not alone. That's really important, right? That's important for us as we go through these, this season, this chosen season of Lent. And part of the reason Lent exists, part of the reason why we do this together is it's really tangible in a season where all of us had said for 40 days we're gonna die together, right? We're gonna follow Jesus from through the tomb, through the, from the cross to the tomb into resurrection. And so this that we're doing right now is a part of forming our memory. That when we have seasons of death, when we find that in our path of following Jesus at a time it's not Lent, where all the songs aren't and the, and the Psalms aren't leading us into these places, that, we're, that we've been in a place like we're in, the place of death, death of old self and death of sin that others have been with us too. We're never alone in it. 
We know we're not alone in it right now because we're all talking about it and we're in the same room. But when we're not in the same room, when this isn't the, the subject of our corporate body, it's still true. It's still true. That's the first memory that Lent is trying to form in us, to awaken in us. That's not the only one. We don't just suffer alone, die alone. We actually resurrect, come to life together too. We, we don't just die alone. We actually rise together. Look, look with me in, in, in verse 12. It seems like a big jump from 11 to 12. It seems like a big chasm, but as we've, as we've noted, it's more of like a gradual movement. The verse 12 says this, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will rise and have pity on Zion and its time. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For the next seven or so verses, the psalmist will give us a vision of new life. And this new life is not just the psalmist's life. This new life is encapsulated in plural language, communal language, um, a together language. It's the language of Zion in Jerusalem. Um, if you remember last week, um, Psalm 51 ends with this. It says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt or peace offerings and whole burnt offerings when bulls will be offered on your altar. If you remember the way we talked about this, remember this is an addition to the way David ends the psalm in verse 17. It's the people who have made this psalm their prayer who add this and say, when the Lord builds his community, his kingdom, when the Lord comes into his place of reigning, where, where together we're in his presence, then what we offer, the Lord accepts. Right? The same language is used in Psalm 102. 102 verse 21 says this, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when people gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. The way Psalm 51 ends in this kind of communal vision of life with God is the way Psalm 102, is where Psalm 102 leads us. Again, into the same language. Now, Zion in the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, is used to describe the kingdom community. A kingdom, a community in which they get to wit, be witness to God's presence and work amongst them. That's what Zion and Jerusalem represent. The kingdom community in which God dwells, in which God shows his favor. Like verse 13. Now is the time. You will arise and have pity on Zion. Pity on your, your community, your people, the people who want to witness you and to know you and to be yours. You show compassion to them. It is it is now the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. Verse 14, for your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. And then listen to verse 15. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and the kings of the earth will fear her glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. It's a place where God dwells. It's a place where God's presence is. And where is God's presence? With us, in us. And listen, the, the beauty of, of this life that we arise into is that it's a, it's a life that includes not just us in this moment, but the people of God past and the people of God in the future. Look in verse 12. What does he say? But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. All that have come before me have died too and experienced resurrection. Have had to die with you and be risen only because of you. We are a part of something that goes back thousands of, of generations, right? Thousands of years. We are a part of a history, a movement of God's working in action from creation's beginning into this moment. That's what we arise into. What kind of perspective does that give us in our life? 
to know that we're a part of God's activeness, his activity, his rising people from death for generations. But he doesn't just say from generations past. Look at verse 18. He says, let this be recorded. Let this, let this moment of resurrection of God's compassion and pity towards me, towards bringing me into the tomb and rising me out of it. Let this be remembered for a generation to come. So that a people yet to be created, yet to be, same, the actual same word here is in Psalm 51, yet to be recreated, reborn. Those not just literally who have not come into existence yet, but those amongst us who have not received and come to new life, who haven't died yet to self and sin and arisen new because of him. That we're a part of, not just something that God's done in the past, so we can have hope and consistency in it. That even in the darkest moments of our day, that we know with the consistency of how God acts and what God has done. But we also are caught up in the midst of God doing that. That what we're going through right now isn't just for us, but for those to come after us. For, yes, for our children who do not yet know, but also for our neighbors who don't know, for our coworkers who don't know, for our family members who don't know. That what are dying is not just for ourselves. Our rising is not just for ourselves, it's for them. We record this, we proclaim this, we talk about this, we live this, experience this for them so that they might know it, that they might get to die to self and sin, to have ones that can, can remind them that what they're going through isn't something just for them, but is a part of something much bigger. And in case that's not enough, in case the generational picture isn't enough, the psalmist gives us this vision of life, uh, of peoples and kingdoms, right? In verse 15, of nations and kings of the earth that will fear the glory of the Lord, that they'll know, they'll be in awe and wonder at God. And in verse 22, it is peoples, plural, gathering together, kingdoms coming together to plural to worship God. In other words, it is utterly everyone. No one's left out. Nothing's left out. No one's left out. Nations and kings, peoples and kingdoms, the whole earth is invited into new life. Life in which God is known and worshiped fully and truly for who he is. Just and compassionate. Mighty and merciful. Sovereign and intimate. It's this vision that allows the psalmist to pray these words in verse 16 and 17. He says, for the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. His presence is there. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Whose prayer? What prayer? Our prayer. The prayer we just prayed in verses 3 through 11. The prayer that started us all out collectively in verses one and two. That's the prayer. He regards it. He, he doesn't despise it. He hasn't rejected it. He hasn't hid his face from us. He's answered it. He's answered the prayer. In verse 19, it says, he looked down from his holy height from heaven. The Lord looked on the earth to hear the groans. Didn't, didn't uh, Amber read about groaning? In verse five, the loud groans of our bones withering away, strength fading. The Lord looks down and he hears the groans. All that we went through, all that we go through in the midst of dying is not alone. The Lord is, not only are we doing it collectively together, but we're going through it with him. He's there in the midst of it. The groans of ones who are not dying, who are, again, who are dying. But listen to the way the psalmist reframes death. The groans of the prisoners. The struggles with self and sin, that's imprisonment. 
It's lack of life, lack of freedom. It's imprisonment. That what we're really aching for is freedom. What we really long for, what we really need is freedom in him. And what does it say in verse 20? He hears the groans of the prisoners to set free. He hears them not just to hear them and have pity and compassion, but to act. He hears them purposely to act, to set free those who were doomed to die. He resurrects at the very point of death. He frees at the very moment when it feels like our imprisonment will be forever. And there's no way to escape. <laughs> this may be just a little too nerdy, but, um, but the, the, the tenses used in verses 16 and 17 of the Lord building Zion, appearing in his glory, regarding our prayers, not despising them, but responding to them, actively listening so that he can act on them, is this is a tense called perfect prophetic. That's what it's called in the, <laughs> the seminary world. But, but it's this idea of like these things are not wishes. They are inevitabilities. It, there, there's a sense of, because it, it's, it's, there's a perfect tense that's used doubly in it, that there's a note of inevitability to these predictions, to this life. The psalmist knows in his new life, not just, oh man, I can't wait till I get there. I hope it might come. But knows with certainty the inevitability of God's dwelling and God's compassionate listening. And so we may say, great, awesome. Those are really awesome things to know, that we are not alone in our dying and that we rise together. But remember, Lent and this, what we're going through together is meant to kind of form these memories in us, to give us things and practices, rituals that help us remember this for seasons that maybe aren't exactly like this, where it's not, again, collectively our focus to talk about these things. So we are going to do something that may feel a little uncomfortable. Um, we are going to share in our dying together. We're going to talk about how we're dying. And then we'll talk about how we're living too. But, like, but we'll, let's do the dying part first. So here's what I want us to do. Is I want us to break up into groups. Ideally four. Um, but like you can mix it up a little bit. And the reason I say this is because I want everybody to have the opportunity to share. Know that you don't have to share. You don't have to share. You can just listen. Sometimes a part of being of where, we, where we're at in those particular moments, it's hard to share. And that's understandable. Um, and sometimes listening can, is just as good for us. But I would encourage you to share and speak because here's what I believe. Like what you, what you share won't just be for you. Remember, we don't just die together like by ourselves. We die for one another, with one another. So like maybe a part of you sharing is actually what the other person needs to hear today, right? And so I wanted to break up into groups, ideally of four, and just answer this question. In what areas, in what areas, in what ways, are you experiencing the death of old self and sin? Just what does it look like to die right now? Think about the first, the first verses, verses three through 11. In what areas are you feeling the groaning? Like what particular things of the old self is the Lord taking from you? In what ways are you feeling the loneliness? Where do you feel like, like you're not understood and connected? Like what, what are, where are those things and what ways are you experiencing that? And give enough time, just be considerate of one another, like be somewhat brief, and, but allow everybody the opportunity to kind of have a conversation. And then we'll move in kind of to the next part of sharing together in life, okay? So you got seven, eight minutes on this first part, all right? Break into groups. If you have any questions, let me know.
Two minutes. Two minutes. Okay, so while you're still in your groups, um, we're going we're gonna to do the second part of the psalm, right? So like part of this practice, like, so it's great. It's, it's awesome to know that we're not alone in our dying. It's awesome to know that we're not alone in our rising. It's doing things like this that helps us remember that, right? It's sharing with one another the truth, the reality that we have all been in a place of dying. At this moment, maybe we're all kind of in the midst of our dying to self and sin, right? But it's, but it, it's also true is it's not enough just to remember that we're together in our dying. We, we are meant to share in our rising. If you remember what David said at the end of Psalm 51, after his kind of like, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a steadfast spirit in me, like make me this new life. He says, then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Like there's this idea of like, hey, it's, it's me proclaiming what you have done that draws those who I'm one of, he's a transgressor, he's a sinner, back onto the path that you're leading us down, right? And so when we, we share in our dying, we, there's a kind of a commiseration and it's helpful, like we're not alone in it, that this is actually the normal way in which God moves us into life, right? To remind ourselves, to encourage one another, to, to remember and to hold fast so that they don't get kind of spun off into the darkness. But if we don't ever make the turn into the second part, then we just kind of sit here and we just become commiserators, right? We're just always talking about how we're dying. <laughs> and, um, and that doesn't seem like that's super helpful. It's helpful in moments, but it's not helpful for us to live because we're meant to live, right? Like there has to be these both things together. So what we're gonna do for the next few moments is we're gonna share in our rising. And we're gonna tell and remind each other that we're a part of something, right? That in what ways has God shown pity to you or to us? What is he, how has he been with you or in us in the valley? These are testimonies. Remember, Zion and Jerusalem are the kingdom, the community kingdom of God's presence, of people who have witnessed his presence and are witnesses to his presence in his favor, right? Witnesses to it. Here's where we get to witness to one another. So for a few minutes, you don't have to answer all of these by any means, right? But these are just kind of there to kind of give you an idea of things that we want to share over the next few moments. In what ways has God risen you up? showed compassion to you, been with you, regarded your prayers, heard you, and freed you from the imprisonment of death and sin. Okay? Got five minutes. Go.
Two minutes, two minutes. Right. Um, you may uh, you may or may not have noticed, but if you want to kind of come back into into to look in this direction for a second, you may or may not have noticed that we didn't finish the psalm. Um, that we got to like verse twenty two. Um, there, there's a re- reason for that. So if you if you got your Bibles, come come back to Psalm one hundred two because this is important, right? Um, psalm one hundred two. So. It's absolutely true and amazing that we don't die alone, that we go through and we follow Jesus together into death, that what we go through, somebody else has gone through, so that we might also know, and that others will go through it too, can walk with them in it. So whether it's for us in the moment or uh, for those coming after us, like we, we get to go through this thing together, like we're in this we're, all, we're always in this together, right? We're also raised into something together, something that's been going on a long time before us, that our days are not random. Like, the things that happen in our life are not random. Like, they're a part of God's big story that's been working out throughout all generations and will continue on even after today, right, to tomorrow and the generations to come. And that's really good and true and amazing. But there's something, there's something even more grounding, more transformative, than us being together in the midst of this. And this is what, what verse 23 says. Now, I'm gonna read verse 23 and 24 in um, the Septuagint, which is like the Greek uh, um, translation of the Hebrew, um, um, for a reason. So it's gonna read different if you have, like pretty much any other translation. Most of our English translations use the Hebrew um, um, translation to translate verse 23 and 24. But if we go back into the Septuagint, the Greek, the ones who, like, the first church would have read, um, who Jesus would have known, right? Um, um, this, is, this is the way they would have heard Psalm 20, 102, verse 23 and 24. It says, he answered him in the way of his strength. So, again, in years it may say, he has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. It may feel like, oh, no, we're, we're, out, of, we're out of this lamenting. Now we're back into the lamenting, Right? This is that, there's that movement again, that cycle. We're getting back into the cycle of like we get out of it and then we go back into it. That's, that's actually not what's happening. Listen to this. It says in verse 23, he answered him in this way of his strength. Declare to me the fewness of my days. Do not bring me up. Do not summon me to action in the middle of my days. Your years are for generations on end. So like it's written in kind of a way that we're like, who's talking? Who's speaking? In the, the Jewish tradition and what became the early church tradition, the Messiah is speaking. The messianic figure, David's, David's lineage, the one who would be king, who would sit on the throne of Jerusalem, who would rule over Zion, is speaking. He's speaking, the Messiah, to God and saying to God, in the way of his strength, declare to me the fewness of my days. Show me what my days are, what this timeline is for my work. Do not bring me up or summon me to finish my work before it's finished, in the middle of it. For your ways, your years are generations to end. Let me be a part of this generational thing that you're doing. Don't, don't, don't bring me out of it too soon. Don't bring me out of what too soon? Well, verse 25 says this. Of old you... Lord, that's different than the Hebrew version. This is the, the Septuagint, adds a Lord. Of old, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. 
They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. So the question again is who's speaking? Who's talking? In the Christian tradition, in the post-Jesus tradition, even in the Jewish tradition to some extent, this is God talking to the Messiah. And we know this because in Hebrews chapter 1, this is how the writer of Hebrews talks about this verse. The writer of Hebrews in verse 8 says, But the Son of God, speaking of the Son of God, God says, speaking of Jesus, God says, and then he quotes verses 25 through 27. You, Lord, God calls Jesus Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. What happens at the end of this psalm for the Jewish people was that there was a Messiah coming, right? There was the one who would make the difference, make the leap from verse 11 and in the tomb and death to verse 12 and this company of people in the kingdom of God, there would be a messianic figure. Someone would come. God would send his anointed one to come and to save, to bridge this gap from death to life. And it's, the, it's this Messiah figure in verse 23 and 24 who cries out, Lord, let me do my job. I want to do it, and I want to do it forever. And then God says to him, you have, and you will. And so what happens when we, when Jesus, when we make this Messiah figure, um, this kind of part of Psalm, of the, the end of the Psalm, is that means this entire prayer has been the prayer of the Messiah. This entire prayer is Jesus' prayer. We suffer and die together, and we rise together because Jesus suffered he prayed Psalm 102, 3 through 11. He felt alone in the dark, his bones withering away, his strength fading on the brink of death. He felt the indignation of brokenness. God's indignation at brokenness. He didn't cause the brokenness, but he felt it physically, spiritually, emotionally. He suffered with us, for us, and he also rises. He's the one who rose from the dead and establishes the kingdom. Reading the final verses of Messiah's prayer and the Father's response to the Son makes the whole psalm the prayers of Jesus. Imagine that. Jesus praying with us in our lament. Jesus prayed this prayer. He experienced it, everything. Everything. 3 through 11, 12 through 22. He experienced it. He prayed it. It was his. And now us, in the midst of it, in our dying, in our rising, he prays it too. He believes for us in the power, persistence, and sweet grace of God towards us. He is for us the power, persistence, and sweet grace of God towards us. Truly, truly, we are not alone, neither death nor in life. If you have your communion elements, go ahead and grab those in front of you. Remember again what Psalm 51 said. With hopeful expectation, the psalmist proclaimed, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem and you will delight. Then you will delight in right sacrifices in peace offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls, the atonement sacrifice, will be offered on your altar. Today, we confess and receive together. We die and rise together in God's kingdom, freely, with confidence, assurance of God's power, God's persistence, God's grace, because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. His blood poured out for us. His life given so that we might have life. Peace made for us through the whole offering, the wheat offering, the peace offering, his body broken, that we might be whole. Not just us, 
but that we might be a whole, a, a part of a whole world that is whole. To every tribe, tongue, and nation. Every neighbor, every coworker, every child. So will you stand with me? Will you confess these words together as we have throughout the Lenten season? I'll read the words in white and together we'll read the words in yellow. Most holy and merciful Father, we confess to you and to another and to a whole communion of saints in heaven and on earth that we have sinned by our own fault in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. Let these gifts be for us the healing of soul and body, the repelling of every adversary, the illumining of the eyes of our hearts, our sustenance of peace, faith unashamed, love sincere, the fulfilling of wisdom, the observance of your way, the receiving of your grace, and as we talked about today, the attaining of your kingdom now and forever. By the cross and passion of your Son, our King and friend, bring us with all your saints into the complete joy of his resurrection. Bring to maturity the fruit of your salvation, that we may show forth your glory in the world.